So this morning, I uh, want to round out this series, uh, I think it's been 13 or 14 weeks that we've been in uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. And if you're new to the Bible, uh, Philippians is one of the books of the Bible, but it was actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul who wrote much of the New Testament. And uh, so today I'm just going to round that out, uh, but I'm looking forward to what, I'm, what the Lord's given me to share with you today. Um, so I want to begin just by asking you, have you ever known someone who's got pretty much everything that this world can offer? I mean, they got it all, you know, but they're kind of miserable. They're still not happy. They're stingy. They feel entitled. Um, it doesn't matter how much attention they get, how many possessions they acquire, or how much they achieve. Some people have it all, and yet happiness, contentment, seems to elude them. And uh, some of us spend a lot of time searching for that notion of happiness. You know, in the American, uh, the Constitution in the United States of America says everybody has the right to pursue happiness. Well, it doesn't work. Happiness is not something that you want to pursue. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that in a second, because the more that you pursue it, the further away it moves from you. As you think you're getting closer, it moves away from you if you pursue it. And the big lie that many people still buy into, even though a lot of research has shown that it's not true, is that money can buy happiness or that more money means more happiness. Well, it doesn't mean that. It's interesting that we often, uh, we're kind of, we have this romanticized idea that people who are really, really poor, like, you know, when you go on a mission trip and you, you go and you minister among poor people and people come back and say, they're so happy. They're so happy. Well, it's kind of interesting. There's some truth in that statement, but what we do know and what research has shown is that if you have extreme poverty and you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, you, you have no shelter and you feel extremely unsafe, they're not necessarily happy. They're probably not that happy. And so what studies have shown is that for people to be really content, and when people who are in extreme poverty, when they find that their standard of living increases and they get more wealth, their happiness actually increases. They have a higher rate of happiness up to a point. There's a point at which you have enough and getting more is not going to make a difference. It really won't. In fact, it might have the reverse effect because wealth and too many things can actually become a burden that we can't bear. So how do we find happiness and how do we find contentment in life if money and material things and success is not the answer. Where does it lie? Now, I know what the standard Christian answer would be to that. They'd say, well, it's in Jesus. And everybody would say, amen, it's in Jesus. But that's a shallow answer if you don't understand what it means to say that contentment is found in Jesus. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, he said, do not worry about what you, what you will eat, or drink, or your shelter, the clothes on your back. Don't worry about these things. He said, people who are unbelievers, they chase after these things. He said, but you don't have to do that. He said, your Father in heaven will take care of you. 
And he said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be given to you. And I didn't hear a big amen to that. (laughs) But I know in your heart you really believe that. If we seek him first, that we will know that we have everything we need. And that's really what Paul's letter to the church in the city of Philippi, we call it Philippians, that's what it's about. And, And it's really the most positive of all the books of the New Testament, and maybe of the entire Bible. It's positive. There's no, uh, you know, he's not, you know, uh, chastening anybody. He's not correcting anybody, really, except for one little part in the beginning of chapter 4. There were two women that weren't getting along. And Pastor Alyssa talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But it's really upbeat. His attitude is upbeat. And yet Paul is in prison for his faith. And it's not because he was a criminal. He was unjustly criticized uh, and condemned to prison. And yet he saw an opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ in the middle of that. And he talks about that in the first chapter. And so Paul in this letter, and I entitled this whole series of messages, The Good Life, because the good life is not all about the things that we think make us happy or content. It really isn't. The good life is a life that is well lived. A good life is a life that when you get to the end of that life, you'll look back and say, I think my life was worth living. I made a difference. And the Apostle Paul was able to do that when he reflected upon his life. And so you're just going to see uh, this passage of Scripture. This, I'm just rounding up this. This is right near the end of the letter. Philippians chapter 4, and these will come up here on the screen. And, and, and this is what he says. Remember, he's in prison. He's sort of like he's far away from everybody that he loves, pretty much, and from his homeland, and pretty much maybe feeling forsaken from time to time. And he says, how grateful I am that you are helping me again. Now, he says that because there was a guy called Epaphroditus. The, the Christians in the church in Philippi knew that Paul was in prison, and they wanted to help him. They wanted to encourage him. And so they sent a financial gift and probably some other stuff too. You know, and they said, this is our love gift to you, Paul. And they sent it by way of Epaphroditus. And he's thanking them for that gift. He said, I know you've been anxious to send what you could, but for a while you didn't have the chance. But now they had the opportunity to get it to him. He says, not that I was ever in need. Now think about this. For I have learned how to get, how to get along happily or how to be content, whether I have much or little. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of contentment in every situation, whether it be a full stomach or hunger, plenty or want. For I can do everything God asked me to do with the help of Christ who gives me the strength and the power. Let's keep going. But even so, you've done right in helping me in my present difficulty. And then he goes on to remind them about some things that they already knew. He says right at the end of that, verse 17, but though I appreciate your gifts, 
What makes me happiest is the well-earned reward you will have because of your kindness. And he's referring to their reward in heaven. And let's go to the last little segment there. At the moment, I have all I need. More than I need, I am generously supplied with the gifts that you sent me when Epaphroditus came. And then he says, it is he who will supply all your needs from his riches and glory because of what Christ Jesus has done. He's talking here about where contentment is found. He's talking about what he calls the secret of being content no matter what. Who talks that way? Really? I mean, who says things like that and really means it? We can give lip service to it, but this guy really lived it. What quality of faith did the Apostle Paul have that he was able to say, I've learned the secret of being content no matter what? Even in the worst of circumstances. Well, the secret was found in Christ, in his relationship with Christ. He said, for me to live is Christ, and to die, that's gain for me. Even if you take away my life, my life is not over. I will go on. Paul took literally the words of Jesus. When Jesus said to his disciples, he said, if anyone wants to come after me or become my disciple, that person must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The Apostle Paul literally did that. He lost his life. His life was completely absorbed in knowing Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul did what Jesus said when he said, seek first the kingdom. He did seek first his kingdom. He knew that a life, a good life, was a life that was well lived, a life that was worth living because it was a life that was spent for God. And that's why he could say in verse 11 of that passage I read, he said, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. He knew who he was, his identity. He knew who he belonged to, and he knew what his purpose was in this life, and it was not to be happy. Our purpose is not to be happy. I'll explain that more. But you'll see it up here in a quote. Take a look at this. Contentment comes from pursuing happiness for others, suffering from seeking happiness for oneself. I believe that statement with my whole heart. The more you chase after happiness as though it is really the pursuit of life, as if it's the be-all and end-all of life, you'll end up disappointed because you'll never, ever have enough. But if you seek the contentment and the happiness and the well-being of others, of those around you, of those in faraway places, the serendipitous thing about this, I love that word. I even love saying it, serendipitous. Anyway, it rolls off the tongue really nicely. But it is. It's kind of like a happy surprise. We find out, you know, I didn't go for it. I didn't chase after happiness, but somehow I find I'm content and everything's okay. Even though there's things in my life that aren't right from a human perspective. Now, some people might scoff at that statement. And they might question the premise that contentment is found in losing our lives for the sake of Christ. But that's exactly how the Apostle Paul lived. Um, 
So I am a big fan uh, of the writings of, of Watchman Nee. It doesn't mean I agree with every single thing he says, but I, I'm a big fan of uh, Watchman Nee. He was a, a Christian in China uh, when Mao Zedong uh, came to power in uh, communist China. And uh, he was persecuted for his faith. Um, he actually said this. The fact is, and this is a quote, he said that you will never be the same after you pass through suffering. Either you will have your capacity enlarged or you will become more hardened. You'll become better or you'll become bitter. But suffering leaves a mark upon all of us. And he knew what it was to suffer. When he was attacked by his enemy and his character was besmirched, what he did is he didn't, he didn't hit back. He never stooped to the level of launching counterattacks or threatening his enemies. He believed what Jesus said. He said, pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies. He lived that way. He spent the last 20 years of his life in prison. And the word was that he would sing hymns daily for the other prisoners who were languishing there to hear. Watchman Nee had a life well lived, even though he spent the last 20 years of his life being imprisoned for his faith. It works when you seek your contentment in Christ. So how about you? Can you relate to these words? Does your contentment depend upon things, I'll use a word here, that are contingent? That word contingent means things that you have no control over. They might happen, they might not happen. Does your happiness depend on what you watch on the news every day? Do you worry about the coronavirus? Do you worry about global terrorism or cyber terrorism or who gets elected uh, this year in the U.S. and all of that? Do you worry and fret over those things? You know what? We don't have a lot of control over those events. It's all contingent. So think of the freedom that you could have if you could say that my happiness, my contentment doesn't depend on what's going on around me. That is possible. And I'm going to share with you how that is possible. And I'm not saying I've mastered this, but I'm growing into it. When you don't get your own way, how do you feel about that? Somebody once said, I'm easy to get along with as long as I get my own way. <laughs> when you don't get the recognition you deserve, do you wallow in self-pity? Do you grumble and complain about it? And languish in resentment. Even though Paul is writing from his prison cell, his letter is drenched with gratitude. He thanks them for this probably fairly small gift that they brought to him that probably couldn't make up for the fact that he was in prison. But he's exceedingly grateful. Paul was not what you would call a needy person or high maintenance. I want you to look around you right now. You see any high maintenance people around you? Okay, don't point any fingers, okay? Um, but he was not needy. He was not, as some of you here today would maybe take pride in the fact that you'd say, I'm not needy, I don't need anything from anybody. That might be your pride speaking. Nowhere in this letter does the Apostle Paul complain about his troubles. Neither does he just accept it fatalistically and say, well, it is what it is, Whatever. Doesn't do that. And that's what some people do. They just accept it, but they don't think that there's anything they can do to find joy and peace in the middle of that. 
But Paul expresses his gratitude to them in the midst of his suffering. And we can see, and you can look at this in the next passage here, that they wanted to help him time and time again, but they just lacked the opportunity. We don't know why. But he does say right there, the, that last verse, verse 11 there, he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, but I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. He said, I'm thanking you for the gift. It was an added blessing, but I don't say thank you because I needed it. I didn't need it because I was content without it, but the fact that you gave it, I really do appreciate that. And it's kind of interesting how many of us are people who have a hard time receiving. Don't raise your hand, but I want you to raise the hand of the person next to you if you think they have a, No, don't do that either. See. But I'll tell you this. I know a lot of, I mean, lovely people. They are saints. They're wonderful believers. They have a strong, deep faith in Christ, and they love to give to others. They love to help others. But when they themselves are in trouble, when they themselves need help or assistance, they don't like receiving. And you know what, folks? Come on. That's a point of pride right there. Now, maybe I've offended you when I said that. You might say, no, it's not pride. Something else is going on. Well, maybe there's something else going on. But all I can say is, when we say, when we say, I don't need the help of others. Paul didn't say that. He was just saying, I've learned to be content with nothing and with everything. Well-fed and hungry. But he knew he needed people. And he knew, guess what? How many times does the Apostle Paul, I just thought of this, how many times does he say, please pray for me? Please pray for me. Please pray that the Lord will open doors for me. He always asked for, he knew he needed people. He knew that he needed people to pray for him, to help him, to assist him in the ministry. But you know, sometimes we get this idea that we're Lone Ranger Christians. Like, you know, I'm an island. I don't need anybody. No, you do. So, Look at this next passage. So he does say this. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty and all that. He said, and then at the very end there, verse 13, he said, I can do all this through him that gives me strength. He can do it all through Christ, through Jesus. So yes, contentment is found in Jesus. But it's found in living life the Jesus way. If you just say it's found in Jesus and you stop there and you don't go deep into what that means... You're going to be disappointed. Lip service to Jesus doesn't help anything. It's a relationship of following him and walking in his steps every day. So what's the secret to contentment? Well, I think it is a secret. <laughs> I, I be Christians and non-Christians, who, and, I, and I'm one of them. Like, I get mad when things go wrong sometimes, you know? Um, and I, I don't like it when my plans are interfered with by circumstances, you know? Um, and so I, I, I understand that. But just to learn to rest, Steve talked about that, our worship leader, just a little bit, just resting. <sighs> Say, God, I don't have control of all this, but you do. I'm going to tell you this, as a pastor... Um, you know, we pastors know we carry the burden, a burden for the church. Many of you who are in leadership in this church carry a burden, and it weighs on you sometimes. 
and it weighs on me. I have those 3 a.m., you know, not phone calls like the President of the United States, but I get, I get 3 a.m. Uh, anxiety. I wake up and I can't get back to sleep, and, and then I have to maybe write things down or I got to pray. Um, but it's hard sometimes. It's a cross. Um, yes, yeah, so what's the secret to that? Well, John the Baptist, you remember John the Baptist? Anybody? No? John the Baptist? Okay. John the Baptist, as you know, under Herod Antipas, he was put into prison and, uh, you know, for saying some things to the king that the king didn't like. And he's languishing in prison, and he starts to kind of have a bit of a pity party. And, and I'm not down on John the Baptist. Please, don't come to me later and say, you know, what are you criticizing John the Baptist for? I'm just telling you, he does kind of. And he, so he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, uh, John's disciples say to Jesus, uh, uh, John wants to know, Jesus, are you the one, the Messiah, or should we expect another? Because stuff just isn't happening for him. Here he is in prison, and if you were really the Messiah, perhaps you know this wouldn't be happening to him because his life would be better. And Jesus says, Tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Yes, I am the one, John. And then he gives a compliment to John after that. He kind of sets him straight. He says, but I tell you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. So he still complimented John. But the fact of the matter is, I think Paul probably went through dark times. Even though he wrote what we read in Philippians, sometimes we think that, this guy, that it was easy for him to be that way. It wasn't easy. I think he probably went through dark times. I think Joseph, in the book of Genesis, when you read the story of Joseph, who was the only one younger than him was his brother Benjamin, but he was like the second youngest of the, of the tribes of Israel. And, and Joseph gets these dreams, these visions from God, that he's going to rule you know, over his brothers and over a people. He gets these dreams and these visions of greatness, and then everything goes wrong. Everything goes wrong. And I'm sure that when he was falsely accused, that when he ended up in prison, he's betrayed by his brothers, he's falsely accused, he ends up in prison. I'm sure he had his dark moments. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But that was the shaping of his character. When you go through the dark tunnel, when you go through the dark night of the soul, that's to shape you, to make you the woman or the man that God wants you to be. And that's where the greatest, deepest lessons are learned. Right there. And I think Paul didn't come to that conclusion of, he said, I have learned the secret. He didn't just know the secret coming out of the womb. You know, he learned it through suffering. Well, so he saw their financial gift as an added blessing. He didn't really need anything. He didn't expect anything. There was no sense of entitlement. The Apostle Paul saw himself as not as a creditor to whom he thought, every, you know, everybody owes me, life owes me, the world owes me. He saw himself as a debtor, someone who owes everything. That's how he viewed his life. And so when you're a debtor and not a creditor, you can't lose because you have nothing anyway except to give away. 
And so that's what he says here in this next passage. He says, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Good of you to share in my troubles. In the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, he said, you know, when I first came to preach to you, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, that's another city, he said, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. It's interesting. So he's saying, I was physically, materially in, in need, but what he's really saying is, in my spirit, I was okay. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain, it's okay. But what you gave me, I appreciate it. He was able to receive. So I like how the message translation, you know, Eugene Peterson's Bible called The Message is kind of an interesting translation. He says, I found the recipe for being happy. He didn't say the secret. He said, I found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, whether my hands are full or empty. He says, I found the recipe. It's kind of interesting about recipes. Um, so when we have Thanksgiving dinner and often like a Christmas dinner, uh, we have this thing called sweet potato casserole. How many of you love sweet potato casserole? Ooh okay, sweet potato casserole. So I got my wife's recipe here. Okay, and so, and so one day we were doing that. I said, okay, dear, I'd, I'd like to help, you know, make the casserole. I can do that part, you know, so she's not doing all the work by herself. Husbands take note. Okay, anyway. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, so it says here, four cups of sweet potato, a half a cup of sugar, two eggs beaten, a half a teaspoon of salt, four tablespoons butter, half a cup of milk, half a teaspoon of vanilla, one and a half cups of brown sugar, three-quarter cup of flour, a half cup of butter, uh, and the three-quarter cups of oats or nuts. So I thought, oh, that's simple enough. So I took this thing, I had a big bowl, I put all the ingredients, I measured the ingredients, put them all in, mixed it all together, put it in that big roasting pan or whatever you call it. That Anyway, the dish, okay. Um, and uh, anyway, I put it all in there and kind of patted it down and put it in the oven. And so anyway, so this thing uh, is finally cooked. And we dig into it. And honestly, folks, it was like glue. It was like glue. And I'm like, what did I do wrong? Well, I forgot to read the one little part here. See, there's two sides to the recipe. This is the part you mix first. And then it says topping. The other part was the topping. And I didn't get that part. I didn't read the recipe quite right. And, and it's interesting, there's a certain... So when you're baking or cooking, you got to know the ingredients and you got to have the ingredients at your disposal, but you also got to know how to mix it together in the right proportion, in the right order. So what's the secret ingredient for contentment? It's what the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2. It's known as the kenosis passage. Kenosis is a Greek word for emptying. And it's a, it's a passage on the humility of Christ. It said, even though he was God from all eternity, he let it go. And he condescended. He came down to where we are. He became one of us. He took on flesh. He became a servant. And then he became a sacrifice on the cross. He humbled himself. The secret ingredient to contentment is humility. It really is. As soon as you say, I'm not a creditor, I'm a debtor. I came into this world with nothing and I'll leave with nothing. 
and nothing is owing me. I'm, I have, there's nothing that I'm entitled to. Anything good that comes my way is the same attitude as Paul. Hey, I didn't need it, but thank you so much. Everything is serendipitous. It's just like, thank you. It's good. I enjoy it. All the good things that come my way are just a gift. They're just a gift. That's all they are. But it's a gift. It's not wages. Not like I earned it. I, just, I don't deserve anything, really. And so I can receive everything with gratitude, and that's the point. Humility produces gratitude. If, if, if you have an attitude of humility, and you're willing to do what Jesus did, to take the lowest place. You know, it's like one multinational corporation that I read about. This is in a book called um, The Advantage. I think it's called The Advantage. Anyway, by Patrick Lencioni. It's a business book. And he actually says, you know, one, they, they were, this one company was putting out their core values, and one of the core values was willing to clean toilets. Core value for executives. Ooh, I like that. You know, that'll separate the wheat from the chaff right there, right? And so humility, willing to take the lowest place for the sake of Christ. What happens when humility characterizes us? What it does is it produces gratitude. Because how can you ever complain when you take on humility? When you follow in the path, in the footsteps of Jesus... You can't complain. You can't wallow with self-pity. You can't say, poor me. As soon as you do, you're going to be convicted by the Holy Spirit and have to repent of it. And I have to do that quite often. But then, humility produces gratitude, and gratitude produces contentment. And it works that way, and that's the order of the recipe. Humility comes first. Humility... Humility must characterize, should characterize every person who says, I'm a follower of Jesus. There is no such thing as a proud Christian. The opposite of humility is arrogance. I know it all, and I'm right. You know, that, that's not the Christian. That's not the way of Jesus. So, humility is our superpower. <laughs> it really is. It was Jesus' superpower. The book, Good to Great, uh, by, and th there you see it there, by Jim Collins. This, this was like a New York Times bestseller in the you know, business book back in the... How many of you know this book? How many? Just raise your hand. Yeah, some of you read it. And it's an interesting book. You know, he studied like these Fortune 500 companies. He studied like publicly traded companies on the New York Stock Exchange and said, you know, what made mediocre companies become great companies? What happened? And a lot of it, so much of it had to do with the CEO. And what he said, this is what they found out. CEOs who were level five leaders could turn a, a, a poor company around could dig it out and make it successful again. What's a level five leader? He said, level five leader is this, is a person who displays a powerful mixture, we're talking about chief executive officers here, of publicly traded companies on the New York Stock Exchange, right? He said, they're people who have a powerful mixture of personal humility and an indomitable will. They're ambitious, but not for themselves. They're ambitious for the cause that they lead. They're often very self-effacing, quiet, reserved, and even shy. 
They don't have to be bigger than life. They're humble. And they said, in business, and this is verifiable, humble leaders who are also undaunted in their mission are the kinds of people that turn these companies around. And boy, if that's true in business, how much more should it be true in the church of Jesus Christ? Led by humble people who are undaunted and who never lose heart, even in the face of the worst suffering. So we have a song that we sometimes sing in church, and we're not doing this one today. How many of you know Christ is enough for me? Christ is my reward in all of my devotion. There's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy. Hmm, we sing that. Through every trial, my soul will sing, no turning back, I've been set free. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Everything I need. The next verse says, Christ, my all in all, the joy of my salvation, and this hope will never fail. Heaven is our home. Through every storm, my soul will sing. Through every storm, my soul will sing. Through every storm, my soul will sing. Jesus is here. To God be the glory. No turning back. I will follow him. Um, boy, that song is a testimony. And we sing it in church. Next time we sing it, though, I want you to really reflect on what that means. But this, this contentment that Paul knew, this sort of repose that he had about himself, this peace. I mean, contentment is joy and peace, right? That's what it is. Um, it has to be cultivated. It was cultivated in Joseph in the Old Testament, in Genesis. It was cultivated in Paul through suffering. But we've got to learn from it. If we just complain, we never, we don't learn, we don't grow. Nothing changes. And so my own story is, I'm like you. I'm given to want to complain and feel sorry for myself and feel like I deserve better. I have my moments, and someday when I die and you look at my journals, you'll see some of my confessions. <laughs> well, maybe you won't. My wife is there. Anyway, guard those. Okay. Um, but, but I do often pour my heart out in those things. Because I know, folks, here's what, for you to be reminded of your identity, of who you are in Christ, and of your purpose, of why you're here, you must spend time with God every day. I can't, I, my quiet time in the morning is precious to me. Um, there's a young man that I'm related to, who's never, who's given lip service to God, would go to church, but wouldn't probably stay for the message. He'd be one of the foyer people, lobby people. He'd be one of the people talking out there. Just wasn't interested in worship, wasn't interested in sermons. And this young man found a church that just really resonated with him. His kind of music. <laughs> it's lit up like a theater, well, it darkened like a theater, and you know, all that kind of stuff, and 
loves the music and the preaching, and, but he still wasn't reading his Bible, wasn't spending time with God. And I said, you want to? And he goes, I'd like to, but I just don't know what to do and where to start. And I said, why don't you try some mini goals, mini goals. Don't say you're going to be like me or you're, you know, this other person where you know, we spend like 45 minutes to an hour to maybe even longer in the morning because you'll never keep it up. You'll get discouraged after the first or second day. I said, what can you do every day and never miss? Five minutes. Okay, five minutes. Before you do anything, you'll do five minutes. Yeah, I could do that. Set the alarm five minutes early. I could do five minutes. So, okay, great. Well, first day, this person, he went about 20 minutes. I said, don't change the goal. Keep the goal five minutes for six weeks. But if you go over, you're not going to be punished. I said, okay. And I'll tell you, it's, it is transforming this person. I can see the difference. You spend time with God, you will learn the secret of contentment. But you've got to do it. And I think we have to do it every day. I really do. Set a mini goal. Maybe your mini goal is two minutes. And maybe it's not in the morning. The other thing is just be spiritually vigilant all day long. I've got too many things I can say here. But for me, I, I have to have um, snacks all day long. I, got, I, I, I need to have spiritual snacks. I've got to spend time. I've got to pull away. Uh, I know I've seen Pastor Blaine do this as well. Just kind of through the day, you, sometimes you just got to take a break. You got to come away from it all and just, whew, I got to settle myself and I, I need to draw into his presence. Um, that's how you become an overcomer. That's how you find contentment in everything. And so I want to encourage you today. If you read this passage of Scripture that I'm preaching on, particularly that verse that says, I've learned the secret of being content no matter what, and you kind of go, I, I have no idea. Would you give God a chance? Would you just spend time with Him? Because you know what? If you don't spend time with Him, how can He ever teach you? The Holy Spirit is our mentor. You know, the Holy Spirit is the one who guides us into truth and who reveals the words of God to us. But we need to give him time and space to do that. So here's my, here's the homework. You ready? You don't have to write this down. It's easy. It's kind of tied together. For start your mini habit starting today or tomorrow. Okay, just start it. What is it? Two minutes, five minutes, but make sure it's something that you can sustain for at least six weeks. You can start with the Gospel of John in the New Testament. John, Gospel of John, New Testament, Gospel of John. But start reading. Don't expect that you're going to get something really cool every day. It's okay. Just get the habit. Get the habit. Get the habit. Because God's going to surprise you one of these days, and he's going to really show up. But when you do that, start off by thanking God for one thing in your life. Attitude of gratitude. And then do your little mini time. That might turn into a bigger time. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and close us out. Uh, and I would just like to pray. Father, thank you that you have uh, given us everything that we need. Even when everything is taken from us. And when all of the material things and all the physical 
things that we so often take for granted are removed from us. Yes, Christ is enough. You are enough. And you are a good, good father. Father, you are a good father. Help us to know how good you are because when we know how good you are, we can live out of that goodness and we can be good to others living your life before them. Help us, Lord, never to complain. Help us, Lord, to be humble, to be filled with gratitude and filled with contentment. In Jesus' name, amen.